Welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida, and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Chenefee, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facilities side of our business. Welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Chenefee. I'm your host. Today, we have the second in our series from the director's desk, and we talk with Patrick Kearns, one of the stalwarts of our industry. Patrick took the lead on behalf of the USPTA during the past year in regards to the COVID crisis and created and maintains one of the leading resources for all of us professionals with the USPTA COVID-19 support page on Facebook. Whether you're a director of tennis, fitness, or lead a camp, his work these past 10 months has been unwavering and at the forefront of what we all do. Patrick is the executive director of the USPTA Mid-Atlantic section and also owner and operator of his four-star camp program based at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. He's been a director of tennis at several clubs, including the Country Club of Darien on the Connecticut coastline and Farmington Country Club there in the Virginia Hills. We discussed the three requirements for being an excellent director, how the camp business will be reduced and strengthened post-COVID-19, and how we can build, as an industry, upon the growth of tennis players over the past year. Before we speak with Patrick, I'd like to mention that we are always working on updating and adding to our content at our spot on the World Wide Web. Our site, beyondthebaselines.com, has a plethora of information from all our contributors, writers, and podcast guests. So please check us out there at beyondthebaselines.com. If you have any questions as to how we can work for you at your club or facility, feel free to write me and the team at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or give us a call at the office on 508-538-1288. Let's gather that data, educate ourselves on your facility, and bring the magic of what we can accomplish together at your club or facility in 2021. And now, straight from Charlottesville, Virginia, and the campus of UVA, Here's Patrick. Well, thank you for joining the podcast. And uh, I'm Ed Chanifee. I'm your host. And this week we have Patrick Kearns, who's the executive director and owner of Four Star Camps there in Charlottesville, Virginia. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for joining us. Ed, thanks for thanks for having me today. Looking forward to a great conversation. I would like to start off. A lot of people don't know about the professional tennis management degree and certifications and all that. You were one of the first PTMers, as they call us in our industry, out of Ferris State. Now the program is growing so fast; it's adding college and college after university after university. Tell us a bit about the program. Those that don't know about the program, how it helped you in your career. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, it's 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 funny. Um, last night, actually, we had a alumni meeting in which once a month we've been having these alumni meetings with um, our PTM program over the course of the last 35 years. We've had, you know, numerous people that have come through that program. But so Fair State was the first one that, that had the program. Um, I was fortunate enough to be in the first class. Uh, Scott Schultz was the one who started the program in 1986. And uh, I was very fortunate that I was in that first class because I got the opportunity to really be on the ground floor with it. And you know what, what basically what Fair State was able to do was to provide a link between 
the business side of tennis and also the, the teaching side. Um, Fair State's tennis programs are, you know, one of the top in the, you know, division two. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. fortunate, you know, I was fortunate when I was there, they were, you know, top five in the country. And, you know, it was great. Um, so a typical day going to school there would be, you know, taking business classes in the morning and during the, you know, during the school day. And then, you know, in the afternoons, you'd go hit tennis balls and, you know, you teach them tennis. And basically our, our office was on the tennis courts. I mean, it was great. I mean, it was a great experience. And when I was there, we had, you know, about 30 kids who started in that program and mm-hmm. it's went as high as, you know, 70 to 80. And now it's got about 30, 35, but you know, there's different programs that are popping up, like you said, all across the country. Um, you know, there's one in Florida, there's one in Georgia, there's, you know, they're, they're all over. I mean, it's, it's really been a successful thing. Yeah. And, and I'd like to publicize it because it is, it is a fantastic asset to our industry. Uh, you know, the, the PTMers, uh, I, I've called on, I think it's a Methodist. Uh, they have a great program there. Yep. And yes. I've, I've, I've called down there seeking for interns, you know, because yes. as a director, you're always looking for someone who, who really wants to make tennis their career. I'd much rather hire, it sounds terrible, someone that wants to make tennis their career than someone who's just looking at it to be in it for a year. I'd, I'd like to mentor someone given the, the, their opportunity to, to move that into another, further into the field. And the PTM internship program is a great one to do that. Uh, I'm sure you, you've had experience with that, have you? I have. Uh, you know, I've hired, a, I've hired a lot of interns over the, over the years. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's been, it's been great. I still keep in touch with them. Uh, last night on our Zoom call that we had with the alumni, there were three interns that had uh, worked for me that were on the call. And, you know, it's one of those things where you always have the opportunity to reach out to them. You know, they reach out to me and, you know, it's just a great relationship to have with, uh, you know, not only with them, but also with the university. That's great. Now, what's funny is we, we got to know each other a little bit during this year because of the COVID crisis. And uh, you took a wonderful lead on that, which we'll come back to in a second. But as we were chatting about setting up a time for the podcast, uh, we talked about where we'd worked and we worked at the same club up in, up in Greenwich, Connecticut there at Round Hill. And it turns out I, I filled in for you before you could get there from Ferris State. So I was there for like the month that you were coming in after um, working for Hugh Underhill there at Round Hill. How, how was it to earn your stripes, as we could say, at, at, at a club like Round Hill, which is a great club up in Greenwich, golf club, you know, country club, or John's Island Club down here in Vero Beach, where I actually live. Both beautiful clubs. How did that background help you in your career going forward? Well, I was fortunate that when Mike Raleigh, who, you know, came and interviewed um, kids at Ferris, who uh, Mikey, Mikey was the director of tennis at Johns Island. And, you know, to make a long story short, what happened was Tom Fish, who, you know, Marty's father, who worked mm-hmm. for, worked for Mike, uh, took the job at Riamar. And when he took the job at Riamar, there was a, you know, a job that, you know, that had opened up and, mm-hmm. You know, so everybody moved moved up a slot, so to speak, and so they needed, uh, I guess you could say, a, a grunt, and I became that low man. And uh, my nickname at Johns Island was the Green Machine, and the reason why I was called the Green Machine was because I was as green as you could possibly imagine. I jumped in there. I worked in the shop. I worked, you know, court maintenance, and you know, strung rackets, and. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was fortunate that, you know, that Mikey, you know, took me on as, you know, Mikey became my first, really my first mentor. And in doing so, he, you know, helped me, you know, get my job at at Round Hill. 
in which yep. you know, I spent two years at Johns Island. And then after that, I spent, you know, five, five to six years at Round Hill as the first assistant with Huey. And then, you know, from there, I ended up at the, as a director at the Country Club of Darien before I ended up down here in Charlottesville. Yeah, Riomar, it's funny. I did you actually work at Riomar? I didn't. Um, you know, okay. when I when I ended up at you know down at Vero, you know, um, Tom went over there to Riomar, and, mm -hmm. you know, and I ended up at Johns Island. I was there for basically for two seasons as an intern, and uh, you know, lived with you know lived with Stan Oli. And mm -hmm. uh, I was there with Stan with stick and um, yeah, I mean, we've, you know, we got tons of good stories. I mean, Stan's a very close friend of mine. We still keep in touch. He was obviously a big part of that uh, COVID um, support group also. Yep. And, yep. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the people that I was able to meet by working at um, Johns Island and round Hill is, you know, like, like today when you sent me that message about, you know, Jim Buck, I was like, wow, God, that is a flash from the past. There but you, you know, go. Yes, you know, people that I've known for, you know, 30, 35 years in the industry, it's all, you know, it comes full circle. It does. And, you know, what's amazing, let's just take it back a little step. So Riamar uh, is now called Quail Valley. You know, right. they, they, Riamar sold the yacht club part of their club to uh, two gentlemen. And, and in, in fact, I was head pro at the new Quail Valley uh, for five years. Wow. So I've been here in Vero for a while. And then the unbelievable thing about what you just said is Tom Fish is up up north in Vero at, at a place called Windsor, which is a wonderful, right, right. Uh, a gated community, beautiful. It is a great <laughs> job. Um, but uh, right next door is, is where I work now, just in the mornings I help out Jim Buck at right. Orchid. So Jim and Tom are right next to each other, literally divided by a fence and, and, a, and a street called Jungle Trail. Right. Uh, so, you know, those are the mentors of the industry that we all respect and, and have actually carved out, you know, some of our careers um, in, in many ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, if, if um, you know, if Tom doesn't take that job at Riamar, I don't end up at Johns Island. I don't end up at Round Hill. I don't end up at Farmington. You know, I mean, right. that's, that's, that's what happens. I mean, it's, you know, one thing happens and then it just becomes a, which is pretty common within our industry. Once one job opens, a lot of, you know, dominoes start to fall. Yep. Yep. And, and uh, it was interesting, you know, during the, I, it's a wonderful way to say it because during the, the recession, you know, 2008, when I got back into this business, people were not moving. Pros were not moving. They were hunkered down. They, they yep. didn't want to sell their homes. They didn't want to take an opportunity if there was a chance. Now with the, with the, uh, the economy stronger, there seems to be a bit more of a, as you call it, domino effect, people making that move or taking that extra opportunity. So for the younger people in our industry, there, there'll be slots moving and uh, opening up, we hope. Let me ask you a question about being a director of tennis. Obviously, now you run a, a camp program. You're the executive director, uh, USPTA Mid-Atlantic Region. But as a director back there, um, in your previous, uh, I guess it was at Darien Country Club and at uh, Farmington. Right. Yep. What do you take away from those days? Uh, what would you say are the top two or three items? You know, my podcast is aimed at, at, at educating and, and advising governing bodies uh, of clubs and facilities. What would you say are the three top requisites for a director of tennis? I, th I think I think first is you have to understand the the business side of it, uh, in the sense of clubs are big business, and when you look at some of the budgets of some of these bigger clubs, um, 
you know, they're million dollar businesses and mm-hmm. um, you've got to be able to run the actual business and be able to, you know, a typical day is going to be, you know, show up at seven, seven thirty, check in with your court maintenance person, um, you know, eight o'clock, you're probably going to jump on the court off the court at nine, maybe do some ladies teams until 1130, Then you have a few hours off in the afternoon where you're trying to get all your stuff done back on the court at three, you know, I mean, that, that, that could be your typical day, but at a, mm-hmm. um, but at a big club, maybe you're not on the court as much and you're actually doing more managing where, you know, you could have a staff of 15, 20 people, you know, when I was at, when I was at Farmington, I had a staff of about 12 people who worked underneath me between assistants and pro shop and court maintenance and all that. And most of my, you know, a lot of my day was carved out with, you know, actually being a manager, uh, right. you know, as opposed to, you know, teaching them how to hit a forehand, but also, you know, mentoring and, you know, making sure that the, the actual business was running, you know, at the, at the level that the, that the members expected. Um, I think, I think second, um, is making sure that the fill that making sure that the facility is always um, at its at its best, mm-hmm. in the sense in the sense of you know every every year really taking a deep dive into what really needed to be you know from a capital standpoint as to what needed to be improved. You know when I was there, you know we built an indoor facility. You know fencing getting redone, courts being redone, uh, platform tennis courts being redone. And so there's this constant, constant cycle of capital projects. And you've got to make sure that, you know, within the, with, within your tennis department, you've got to make sure you're getting what's yours, because I'll guarantee you that the, the golf, you know, the golf committee and the greens committee is stepping up and asking for a lot of money. And so when you're, you've got to understand what's also happening, you know, around your club, I, I had good relationships with, uh, the golf pro and the golf superintendent. So I always knew what they were asking for before, you know, before I asked. And so yeah, that's a I mean, good point. Well, they are, I mean, they're coming in and yeah. they're asking for millions. And so, you know, when they're, when they're coming in and they're going to shut down their golf course, you know, they're, they're going to spend three, $4 million on the upgrade. Well, you've got to make sure that you're asking for all this, you know, obviously you're not going to ask for, you know, a couple million dollars, but you've got to be asking for your, you know, hundred thousand dollars or $200,000, you know, making sure that, that everything that you're asking for is really what's needed to improve your, improve your club. Mm-hmm. And then I think, and then I think the third thing is, is having a good relationship with your tennis committee. Uh, I was fortunate that, you know, I, I did have a good relationship with my committee. And so I, I always knew what they were looking for uh, from a tennis program standpoint. And that was, and, and I think that's important, making sure that your programs coincide with what, um, what your club actually needs. Well said. I really enjoy that you've, you said the business side of it, because that's what I impress uh, upon my clients is that a director of tennis is really a CEO or a chairman of the board of the department, you know, departments, as you said, are a part of a bigger business, which is the club. The DOT is basically a department head, which is basically a CEO of that department. Um, you said it perfectly, succinctly. In this year of COVID, uh, you took the lead. You had your Facebook COVID-19 support group, USBTA page. You did a phenomenal, created a phenomenal spreadsheet for all us directors and head pros and, and, and assistant pros and in what we should expect out of a COVID year, what, how we could help ourselves in a COVID year. What drove you to do that? What, what was the driving factor behind all that, that impetus you put into our industry? 
Well, I think I think when it when it first started, it was one of those things where nobody really knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, how I ended up being the the chair of it was really a couple of things happened. One, our division was the first division that actually had to cancel our conference. And so what happened was we had a conference, you know, we had 125 people getting ready to come to a conference on a Saturday or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And the Sunday before that Indian Wells got canceled. Right. And that Monday morning, my, you know, my, my president and I, we kind of, you know, uh, Jason Gregg lives here in Charlottesville and we, you know, I messaged him and he messaged, I messaged him and said, Hey, what do you think about this? And, and he's like, you know, we, we got to kind of, you know, let's kind of wait and see. And so I, I messaged uh, or I called the national office and they're like, uh, you know, I think we should be okay. And literally over the course of that day, course of that Monday, I mean, everything was starting to shake out and uh, you know, all across the country, you know, and the news was just all COVID, COVID, COVID. Um, we were, it was supposed to be at the Country Club of Virginia, and Rob Oaks, who's the director there, who's uh, also on our board, he's our regional vice president for our USPTA division. You know, I called him and I was like, "Hey, how you know if we need to get out of this, what do we what do we need to do?" <laughs> you know, that long pause, and he's like, uh, "You know, we've we've already ordered all the food, we've already done all these things." <laughs> and he's like, "Let me call you back." And you know, he's, he called me back, and he's like, "We have until noon." on Friday or noon on Tuesday to make a decision. And, and that's because basically, you know, they had to make their order through Cisco. Right. And, um, and he's like, if, if I, if they don't place that order, then we're good. But he said, if you wait until one o'clock on Tuesday, that food's <laughs> ordered. And so that gave us about 24 hours to really kind of get a feel for it. So, you know, we had a board call that, that evening and uh, made the decision to, to cancel it. So anyway, so because of that, we were really the first division that was really 100% into it and kind of knowing what was going on. Um, I was in constant communication with the national office with Faisal, who's our president. We kept going back and forth. Hey, you know, what, what's our next step? Final, finally, Faisal said, hey, this is what we're thinking about. We're thinking about creating a support group. He goes, how would, how would you envision it? It just so happened that at this, while this was happening, my wife, who's, a, who's an RN and works at a hospital, there was a Facebook group that had just started um, doing this exact same thing, but only from a nursing standpoint. And I looked at it and I said, this is it. This is what I think we can actually do from a tennis standpoint. And I kind of pitched it to the national office to phase. I said, we really got to do a couple things. One, we're going to create a Facebook group. Second, we're going to create a website with our, um, a landing page on our website. Um, so people who don't have Facebook can actually be able to go onto the national, um, the USPTA national website and be able to get the same information f- from a certain degree. But what I didn't expect was the outreach that that Facebook page actually created from everybody all over the country and all over, really all over the world, where people were sending me information, they were private messaging me. And so like that, that information that I was putting out, a lot of it, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously you sent me a lot of stuff. There's about a half a dozen people that I was really leaning on to send send me the information. The other thing that I, I I realized that there were other industries that were also in the same situation. So I was really spending a lot of time with the fitness industry and yep. the and the camp industry, which I'm a big part of, and also the uh, and the golf industry. And so I was looking to see what everybody else was doing. And as soon as somebody popped something up, I was able to go in look at it and then be able to manage it and, you know, basically be able to work it. So it fit the tennis industry. 
And, um, and the other thing that was happening was, you know, basically my business was changing. And so I had, when I mean, I had a lot of time, I had a lot of time and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we all were sitting in front of our computer zooming and exactly to out what we were going to do. And we were trying to figure out, but, but, but what I thought was, what I thought was great was it really, from a, from an industry standpoint, everybody came together for that time and really helped each other. And because mm-hmm. of that, I think it, I think that's, that's what made that Facebook group successful. Um, you know, I was looking at it today as, cause I knew we were on this call you know, we ended up with 17, 1700 members on there. But, yeah, I know. It was uh, fantastic. I mean, it, I mean, it really was. And um, if you had, if you had told me like, Hey, when we first started, this was what was going to happen. I would have said there, there's no way, but then as it, as it started to materialize and the information was coming out. And so what I, I mean, you were obviously a part of it. I would be able to get the information at night. And what I tried to do is every morning would be able to push out as much information as I could. And then I'd filter it throughout the day. And, um, you know, and it was great. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, you know, obviously we're going through wave two now. I referred to it back the other day, just because uh, wave two is, you know, rearing its, its ugly head. I went back I to that document and I, and I, it was some of the clubs I consult for. I, I, I pointed them to that page again, because there's some really good advice there for anyone that needs it. It's on the Facebook uh, platform. It's USPTA COVID-19 support page. I think it's called. Yes. Yes. Yep. And it's funny, you know, you say that the, the, you had lots of time. Uh, I did the same thing and, and you did a much better job at editing it. I just fed you some information, but right. what, what I found was that because of what we do as directors at summer clubs, and I'm sure at clubs across the country and you run a camp, the junior program is basically a camp. And so, I was looking very carefully at what, because I'm in Massachusetts in the summer, what the government of Massachusetts was uh, was basically feeding down to the camp associations and what the camp associations were therefore mandating for their camps in Massachusetts. And then I got into the Rhode Island similarities, but there were also many variations. And so I fed those on to you because out of those, we, for me, I kind of made a, a summer camp that kind of worked across both states, you know, camp guidelines as they would say yep and and i think that's what you you were great at editing and sending it out to the 1700 people on that page which was fantastic yeah i mean so when when you look at the camp industry as a whole it's a huge industry huge industry and and the information that i was receiving from them really was the stuff that i was able to you know kind of you know, pilfer to, so to speak, and be able to figure it out as to how it would fit back into a club, because there was, you know, that situation there where, you know, basically camps were shutting down all over the country and, uh, and they were pushing out, you know, the American Camp Association was pushing out a lot of information. And uh, the other thing that they were doing, I thought was that was really well, they were, the way that they were organizing it and editing it, you know, just made, just made sense and made it easy to be able to do it. Now, speaking of camps, you're the owner, executive director of uh, Four Star Camps that's based at University of Virginia, Charlottesville. Beautiful, beautiful campus. Yep. Uh, I wasn't smart enough to get in there. Um, <laughs> but you you basically pivoted from a career as director of tennis at, at private clubs uh, to a creating a camp business. Did you have to get financial backing? If you did, how did you do that? And and how did you manage your cash flow in the early years? Because I think a lot of people, uh, us pros, are thinking about starting their own businesses. And that's always 
a goal, a dream, an objective, you've achieved it. Tell us a bit about how you did it. So what I did was um, I did it all through cash. Um, I was fortunate enough that I, I had saved enough. Uh, mm-hmm. We were able to, you know, I sold some stocks. I had a bunch of cash in and paid for it that way. Um, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done it that way. Um, now that I've now that I've done it, um, you know, I should have went to the bank, borrowed it, and then worked it that way. The, you know, the cash flow side of it early was making sure that you know, that it would be able to run year after year. And, uh, you know, now well, the one thing I, I, the one thing that I know that I wish I would have really thought out a little bit more was, uh, as you know, um, camps are saturated. Right. And there's a, there's a ton of them. There's a ton of them out there. And it's a matter of finding your niche. And when, so just to give you an idea, um, like our camps, we already we're pretty confident that there's probably a pretty good chance our camps won't run again next this upcoming summer here at the University of Virginia. Okay. And so it'll be and, and one of the reasons why is I think that um, from a you know from a university standpoint, I think they're gonna be pretty pretty careful in mm-hmm. making sure that you know that the single most important thing for them is to make sure that come September that all their students are back and in classes and all that. And yep. as opposed to having 10 to 15,000 kids, you know, coming in on campus, you know, and doing a bunch of programs, I think, but anyways, going back to um, my situation at Four Star Camps, I think what, what I, what I wish I would have done better in the beginning was really kind of creating my niche a little bit more from a, in, in the sense of, instead of being everything to everybody, realizing that, you know, from a camp standpoint is just being a little bit smaller and charging a little bit more as opposed to being bigger and not char- and, and, and kind of charging a little bit less. When you look at um, what, what camps are charging, I mean, you know, I mean, summer camp, you know, 13, 14,000 for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I would, so the way that our camp was originally set up was charging, you know, 800 to a thousand a week and, you know, running some, you know, tennis, some golf and, and all that. So when we reopen again, you know, in 2022, I'm going to change the way that our, that our programs are. And that way I think it'll be more profitable long-term. And then the other thing I think will happen is I think you're going to see a lot of camps. Um, I don't want to say go out of business, but, but, re, but it's going to be reduced. And at right. that point, the, it's going to be the strong that will have survived. And, mm-hmm. and since I've been able to pivot into a couple other, couple other things, our, our camps will be, I think, even stronger than they were originally when we, since the last time in 2019, when we did them. Now your four-star camp, take me through this. It, it offers, it offers golf and tennis and anything else. So it's, it's, it's really um, three different things. One is it offers academics. So we do a big um, college prep program with SAT and ACT prep, uh, which mm-hmm. is we're really where we make a lot of our money. And then we also have tennis and golf. So a, a typical week we'll have between, you know, 50, you know, between 40 and 60 kids uh, doing everything from academics, tennis, golf, and stuff like that. And we do it over the course of uh, six weeks. You're in touch with the USPT National, I'm sure. It's tough to ask this, but there, there's definitely a socioeconomic difference between golf and tennis. And yes. as as we go forward, and, and 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 maybe you can bring this back to your camps because you have kids that play golf and kids who play tennis. Maybe they do both. But 
as we move forward with the USPTA, do you think that in the industry, maybe in five years, the PGA to, to me uh, in, in, in the USP, uh, USGA are ahead of us uh, and they seem to be more connected. In, in tennis, we have the PTR, we have the USDA, we have the ITF, we have the WTA, we have the ATP, we have the USPTA, we have everything. You think we'll be more connected in the next five years? Maybe only the strong shall survive in, in, in all these associations as we move forward? I hope so. I think that, um, you know, with COVID, I think what's happened is everybody has been able to work together um, to, you know, to, to provide a product that, you know, that I think the, the industry, the, that consumers want. When you look at the numbers that tennis has pushed out, I mean, if you, I'm sure you saw the third quarter numbers for the retail sales. Yep. Um, they've been unbelievable. And yep. um, when you, when you talk to clubs, you know, you look at our tennis, tennis shop, we've had the best, um, you know, we had the best quarter that we've ever had. Now it's a matter of making sure that we're able to move forward on, on that momentum. And I think that when you look at, um, you know, the new director of the USTA, you know, I think he's got new ideas, um, you know, with new certification and stuff for us also. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you're going to find that um, kind of like what you said, the strong will survive. And I, and I know that, you know, the USPTA is trying to do a lot of new things. Um, you know, diversity inclusion is one. Uh, the other is like creating, um, you know, new mentorships with, you know, with new members. I think that, you know, but I, but I, I think that we, we will, everybody will survive. I do think that you're going to find, especially this upcoming winter with, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the pro tours and, um, you know, especially over in Australia, all the stuff that's going on there and how it'll affect going into the spring. And whether yep. or not, um, you know, we've got a couple guys that live here in Charlottesville who play on the tour. And, um, you know, so I, I, I kind of know the what's going on there. And they're, you know, just waiting it out to see when they can get over there and start playing. And, you know, I think that it's it's going to be something that, you know, that I think that we're going to move forward. And I, and I hope that it's going to be successful. I mean, I look at kind of like what you're talking about with the PGA. And, you know, they've got a, I think they've done it right from the beginning in which... Mm-hmm. There, there's one governing body, and that's it. Um, I do think that it does get a little saturated with all the different, you know, all, all the, you know, what do you want to say, all the different alphabets that are yeah. that are running yeah. all the different all the different things. But I think that I think that we can all work together, and you know, the main thing is is trying to you know provide a good product to the consumer, and the consumer will decide how they want to handle it. Yeah, and and and, and just to bring people up to date, uh, you you mentioned the the retail numbers and and i actually have them on my phone um as a picture because it was out on instagram but in the third quarter total racket shipments were up 43.3 percent year on year 22.3 percent on the whole year and youth racket 40.9 percent up in the third quarter 27.4 up on the year now this isn't a year where the atp tour and the majors one major wasn't even played yeah um the biggest probably if you want to argue at wimbledon and now the Australian's been delayed, so we won't have a major for another, you know, another two months. Um, I'm wondering now if people are still keeping the correlation of of, of the Pro Tour bringing in new members. I, you know, I it's a it's an argument we could discuss all day. But without a Pro Tour, really, tennis is up 40 percent with the kids, um, which I find amazing. Well, not not only that, but I mean, like you take Charlottesville for instance. Every court this fall basically mm-hmm. at night was taken trying to get a court like anywhere in town mm-hmm. was, I mean, it was packed all the time. 
you know, trying to, you know, I, I teach, you know, I, you know, I was teaching a lot in the, this fall and, you know, trying to get court time and every club was the same thing, you know, everything was packed. And, you know, and the, and the goal is, I mean, hopefully is to be able to carry that momentum from the fall, everybody who bought rackets is to keep that momentum going for, you know, for the spring and here in, here in Virginia, our fall has been as nice as it's ever been. You know, I just got off the phone literally 20 minutes ago with um, a pro, um, Rob Oaks from the Country Club of uh, Virginia, mm-hmm. you know, saying, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to keep our courts open as long as possible, you know, through through December that that we have never done. We, we've right. never stayed open this long. And, um, you know, but but he, but he has all clay courts. And so on the south side later in the day there, you know, the courts start to freeze. And so they're getting soft. And he's like, OK, you know, what, what were some of the things that we can do? And, you know, people are playing outside literally as long as they can now. That was unheard of. You know, last year went indoors October 15th. Right. Now, you know, now it's December, you know, December 8th or December 9th and people are still playing outside. They're just throwing on a vest and saying, let's go. Let's let's play. Well, yeah. it's a whole new it's a whole new mental attitude. Instead of paddle, it's tennis uh, right. up in Mary in Massachusetts, where I am. We have eight courts, uh, all clay and uh, four are still open. Um, right. Yeah. And they're seeing play. I mean, yep. we're not there manning the shop anymore, but uh, maintenance people go in in the mornings and they've been played on. Yep. So uh, it is a different season, different year. Uh, COVID has, has extended the tennis season. Um, yes. And I think that's here to stay. I think we're going to see courts reopen in, you know, up, up in New England, probably early April. Uh, you know, they used to open in, in New Canaan and Greenwich where you and I both right. worked early in our careers to, you know, May 1st, you started the ladies, maybe mid-April now with the ladies' teams, but I think they're going to be open April 1st. I think you're going to be seeing people on the courts again. Um, I agree. I mean, uh, just to give you an idea, I mean, that's that's what's happening here in Virginia. People are, are already, uh, clubs are already thinking, how do we open in late February? Right. You know, how do we open late February, early March? You know, and it's one of those things where it's like, well, it gets tricky because of the, because of the lines. Because, yep. you know, if you catch that, that late, you know, that, or I should say, you know, early March snowstorm, which you could possibly get. And if you've already put all your stuff down, they're going to buckle up, they're going to buckle. And that's what I keep telling them. I said, look, you know, in theory, this sounds great, but you got to like, make sure that because they're thinking, well, what if we, what if we put lines down in late February? And I'm like, wow. So that's aggressive. I said, I could see it maybe around the 10th of March, then -hmm. you're okay. But then, I mean, I would not be putting lines down in February. Well, I, I see it in another uh, way, too, a little bit difficult in terms of payroll, because yes. if we open the courts open early, uh, yep. the, the season extends um, on the tennis side. So you're going to have people rolling the courts, maintaining the courts. You're going to have to put some shop staff in early. Payroll gets a lot bigger. Is it worth mm-hmm. those extra you know, few weeks in terms of the budget? Um, I want to say yes, but that's a discussion the boards have to have. Right. It's member satisfaction. Right. Yeah. And, and the cost of that. You obviously have an extensive career in camps and, and, and on the public, more public side, facility side of the business, as well as in the elite clubs uh, side. So you've covered the realm of tennis facilities. How do you think we can find better players in the future from both public and private facilities? Uh, you know, more and more colleges have over 50% of the teams uh, filled and comprised of foreigners. How can we change that statistic in the coming years? 
I think coaches have to do a better job of finding those diamonds in a rough. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's still probably a lot of good players out there that um, Americans that just need, that just need a chance. Uh, I think what, what happens with, um, you know, coaches, you know, they want to find the path of least resistance. And so there's a lot of coaches who, you know, have their connections over in you know, over in Europe or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it's easy for them to be able to recruit. Um, I know that, you know, when, when a lot of those, you know, foreigners do come over, they're hardworking, they're, you know, they're good guys. And so they're, they they have been successful, but I think that there's probably a lot of, you know, American players out there that would love to have that same opportunity. It's just a matter of, you know, coaches letting them, you know, have that opportunity. You know, there's, you know, I, I work with, um, the, some of the UVA guys in which, um, we take care of all the equipment for the, for the team. So I know that, I know that market pretty well. And so it's just a matter of the coaches really finding that, you know, that player out of, Maryland who goes to, you know, JTCC and those guys that are playing down in Florida who, you know, when you look at the, you know, 150th best, you know, player in, in, uh, in Florida, you know, he may not be going to play college tennis, you know, he might be going to, you know, maybe going to, you know, the university of Florida on an academic scholarship, or he's going to, you know, going to these other schools. And I'll, I'll give you an example, you know, University of Virginia this year, we, we're, we're carrying 15 guys. And the, the reason why is to give, you know, more American players the opportunity to be on a team and to create that, you know, that, that opportunity for them to play. Maybe they're not going to be, you know, playing full time, but they're still getting the opportunity to come play be on the team. It's just a matter of whether or not the coaches want to be able to put that many uh, players on a team. And, right. and I'm fortunate that, you know, Andres Pedroza, who's the coach here at University of Virginia, you know, he, he wants to have that big of a team because he wants to be able to, you know, provide those kids to become leaders and to have that opportunity to be on a team. Wonderful. That's a great choice to make, especially in these times where I think funding can be a little challenging for the college teams in terms of coaching. And, and this is probably my, my wrap up question as, a, as someone who is a leader in the USBTA. The USBTA is, is changing its certification program. Right. And I think that has been delayed a bit because of the COVID crisis. Right. But do you think that change will create better coaches? And I know that we, we have a lot of work to do to, to find better coaches, but how do you see that change relevant to coaching and how do you think it will improve coaching and possibly helping, uh, you know, residents here in the U S play better tennis? I think, I mean, the, the, the hope is that by the time they come in to actually become an instructor, they've, they've, they've already been out there and they've, you know, they've found their mentor and they've had the opportunity to teach. Um, I'll give you an example, you know, last night on our zoom call with our PTM alumni, this was one of the discussions that we had, was, you know, how do you, how do you become a better coach? And they, you know, they kept talking, you know, within it, within the group discussion, it was about finding a good place where you could become a good, where you found a good mentor, where you learned how to learn how to teach. And, and most of all, just be a good listener and, you know, and listen to what, you know, the, the coach that you're learning from and how they teach and how they deal with students and, you know, how they're able to keep people out there playing, because what you don't want to do is as a, as a new coach is think that, you know, everything about coaching, because when I, when I came out, 
of Ferris. I mean, I thought I was a pretty good coach until I actually started teaching full time and realized that, wow, I've, I've got a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think with this new certification, I think that's, that's hopefully what, what ends up happening is people have the opportunity to, you know, learn more, become better educated within the industry and not just go out there and all of a sudden you, you know, over the course of a weekend, you get certified. And then, yeah. you know, on Monday, you're, you know, now you're certified instructor, whereas now it's going to be about, you know, doing modules and becoming a better instructor and, and more of a long-term approach as opposed to, you know, short and quick and, and doing it that way. Yeah. I, I know the new program has us doing all kinds of hours for the new, the new coaches, which is great because you need that time in the court with a mentor, as you say. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, I've been teaching tennis for 25 years. And just the other night with my daughter, Olivia, her, her coach said, Hey, Ed, you know, her shoulder's going to start hurting with that toss where it is. I'm like, what are you talking about? And we discussed the toss and the shoulder and, Guess what? Coach Ed learned something new. And yep. we never stop learning, you know? Right. Um, yep. And, and that's something I try to tell my staff as well is, is, you know, I may be your director of tennis, but I'm still out here trying to figure out how better to teach a forehand or a backhand or even teach my daughter how to serve. Yep. Um, he was 11 and, and played this weekend at a tournament down in Palm Beach Gardens. Um, Patrick, I really want to thank you for your time today. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you for all the work you do in the USPTA and and, and all the work you do uh, on behalf of tennis in America. It's fantastic to watch your work, and uh, I'm glad I subbed for you back 30 years ago at Round Hill Country Club. And hey, I appreciate you having me on. I look forward to, uh, I'm sure we'll run across in the same circle soon. And um, hopefully one of these days we'll be able to sit down and have a discussion face-to-face. I hope so, too. And uh, stay healthy out there and be well. Okay. Thank you, Ed. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at BeyondTheBaselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.BeyondTheBaselines.com, which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.